star T minus 10 seconds. The cultists present. Nine, eight, cinema of cruelty. Three, five by two, five. One. We have ignition. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Five by Five. And today on Five by Five, we ask the question: What is most important in film? Lighting, composition? No. The answer is color. Specifically, a color mentioned in the title of the film. As today, we count down our top five films with a color in the title. Although mine might not necessarily be top five, more like five recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> the five films you recommend the most, with, I'm sure, a plethora of honorable mentions. Yeah, probably. All right. I feel like there's at least one we're going to dupe it on, but, you know, that's okay. We don't really arrange these. You know, we like to go in unknowing what the other person has. That's the magic of five by five, I feel. Yeah, it's part of the suspense, you know, the tension. Yeah. Let it build. Yeah. So... Starting with my number five, I have a film that we've talked about very briefly in the past on one of our more fun episodes, Beyond the Green Door. Oh, yes. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. What is Beyond That Green Door? That is a 1971 adult film, a film from the golden age of porno chic. We kind of discussed this film very briefly, I believe, in our Boogie Nights episode, but it's... An example of golden age porn that is going hard. I did that wrong. Just <laughs> really pushing for... No, that's not right either. Really digging in. Digging in. Just thrusting the art into your face. It's a weirdly artistic piece where the main character, played by then ivory soap model Marilyn Chambers, is taken to some... Just some place through a green door, and is, she's made to have sex with a lot of people. What's unique about it is that it focuses very much on her gratification. There's a very big scene where she's having sex with a man, she orgasms, and the scene stops. It's not about the guy getting off. It's all about her getting off. And think about how often you see that in adult films nowadays. Depends on what kind of porn you're watching. Yes. I suppose. And then towards the end of the movie, that there's this... Well, I mean, I was going to say spoilers here, but, I mean, you kind of saw this coming, which, ha 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 yeah. You didn't even mean that one, did you? I didn't even mean to do that one, but I think it just happens naturally. You cannot avoid it in, in, in phrasing moments like this. There's a seven-minute scene that's kind of an extended ejaculation sequence, just weird, artful colors happening and representation of ejaculate going around everywhere. Wait, so when you say it's kind of an artful ejaculation scene, is the kind of modifier on the it's kind of artful or it's kind of ejaculation? I think a little bit of both, really. Also yes, okay. Yes, also yes. It's, you know, a uh, little bit of that. And this film is just great because of a really bizarre story and connection it has with Idris Elba. Follow me here. Okay, go on. 
he was putting together a production company that he was going to call Green Door Productions, that he just liked the name. He thought that was a cool name, Green Door Productions. And he had mm-hmm. his legal team check it out and make sure that there were no other companies called Green Door Productions. And they got back to him and they said, um, okay, there is not another company called Green Door Productions. However, you should be aware that there's this movie called Beyond the Green Door that... Um, yeah, it's a porno, and it's got this weird seven-minute orgasm scene towards the end. And Idris Elba, to his credit, he just thought that was awesome. He's like, fuck yeah, you know what? I'm calling it Green Door Productions. And people ask him, why would you go with that? Why go with Green Door Productions when it's related to this movie with crazy seven-minute orgasm scene? And Idris Elba says, because this production company was a long time coming. Oh. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, you, oh, See, Idris. And more people would be aware of films like Beyond the Green Door if there was what I have always said <sighs> is still needed. You know. A golden era porn streaming service <laughs> called The Golden Stream. <laughs> it's very important to me. Someday it'll happen. Let, Someday my dream will come true. Let me double check something really quick because I'm getting this weird feeling that I'm saying the name of this thing wrong. Behind, is it behind the... No, it is behind the green door. I had that wrong. Okay, I'm glad I checked. I think you're thinking beyond the black rainbow. Yeah, or the valley of the dolls. There's a lot of things that are beyond yeah, things. There's a lot of them there. But I begrudgingly agree with both your statements and the name of the potential streaming service. And really, I think that's why I wanted to bring a porno, a golden age porno into it, is I really want to drive home the point. There's no into one you're there, is there? No. I just want to make sure people know there we need this service. The, the golden stream must become a thing. We need it for the, the history of golden age pornography. It needs to exist. Yes. I concur. All right. All right. The one thing we can agree on. (laughs) Our one commonality. All right. So my number five on films with a color in the title is a 1960s film. Actually, a film from 1960 specifically. All right. Called Purple Noon. Oh. It is a film by René Clement. Mm -hmm. And it is, as far as I know, the first film adaptation I could be wrong on that. There could be ones that came before it of the first talented Mr. Ripley novel. Oh, okay. Yeah. So before we had the 90s talented Mr. Ripley, we had a little movie called Purple Noon. And it comes in at number five and not higher because the 90s one is better. (laughs) It's a lot better for me and what I look for in films, at least. The 90s Talented Mr. Ripley, gorgeous film, has a lot of emotion that is ascribed to its character of Tom Ripley. And there's just a lot of really great queer readings and purposeful queering of the characters, which does exist in the novel as well. Purple Noon is not going to do any of that. We have a very cold clinical straight sociopath in Purple Noon because it is a film coming out of the 1960s. Mm. But it is a gorgeous adaptation in its own right of Talented Mr. Ripley. It's a very bright film, Mm -hmm. (laughs) color-wise. Everything is very sun-bleached 
And there is a Criterion edition of Purple Noon that is out there and has been restored. And oh. it's a very beautiful copy. And the man who's playing Talented Mr. Ripley is a very pretty boy. And that is very important <laughs> as well. So if you want to see some cold, clinical, sociopathic betrayals of Talented Mr. Ripley, for those who do not know what Talented Mr. Ripley is, he's a con artist of sorts who is a bit of an identity thief, and he becomes infatuated in some ways with this other boy, Dickie Greenleaf, who is living in Italy and just has the life that Tom Ripley wants. And so he's going to take it. And shenanigans ensue after he takes out Dickie Greenleaf and assumes his identity. It's a little bit of a thriller of sorts. Yeah, that's how I describe the talented Mr. Ripley. Shenanigans shenanigans yeah if you're only gonna watch one watch the one that came out in the 90s but if you're gonna go all in and watch all of the talented mr ripley's purple noon is a fun watch in its own right just for the cinematography and the locations and the pretty pretty boys alone my number four while my number five was a pornographic film from 1972 i had to double check that i said 71 it's 1972 Beyond, uh, behind the Green Door from 1972. My number... Okay, you're just getting it wrong across the board. I, you know what? Yeah, this is why you fail. Okay, okay. My number four is a film from 1971 that many people felt was pornographic, which is A Clockwork Orange. Fuck yeah. Surprised it's so low on the list. It's, you know, it's all, you know, that's the thing about making lists. No one can really agree on where these things need to go. Yeah, all of mine are totally in no particular order, because the thing with this, like, color in the title thing is that they're all very different genre yeah. films. So there's not really comparing How them. are we grading the use of the color in the title? Because the color orange really does not figure in at all to the movie A Clockwork Orange. In fact, when I think of color from that movie, I, orange is not one of them at all. There's the red of the opening titles. There's a lot of blue in the later scenes. Orange is not really a color. I actually misunderstood the title of this movie for the longest time. I thought it was referring to a clockwork, which was orange. Mm. But in fact, it's referring to an orange that is clockwork. So really, this movie doesn't even have color in the title. It has a fruit in the title. But what are you going to do? However, this lovely little 1971 number from this director, you may have heard of him, Stanley Kubrick. We may have spoken about one of his films for far too long in the past, Eyes Wide Shut. But it's the story of a young lad named Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell. And, you know, he's just a little troublemaker. And the movie kind of uh, gets into that. And if we ever cover this film, I will put it upon myself to learn as much uh, I believe it's called NADSAT as possible, which is yeah, the, NADSAT. Yeah, the slang that is thrown around in the movie by our characters. Its author, Anthony Burgess, was himself a big fan of constructed languages or conlangs, as London d no doubt knows they are called and is upset that I mentioned it first. Well, to yeah. out-pretentious you. <laughs> do, do you dare? Yeah. Back in undergrad for one of my translation studies courses, we did have to pick a language to translate a scene from Hamlet into. And since 
it didn't tell me that it couldn't be a conlang or fictitious fabricated language. I chose NADSAT. And so somewhere on my hard drives in the past is a scene from Hamlet translated into NADSAT. And I'm weirdly proud of it because it worked out really, really well in an unexpected way. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm sure that's a thing. I'm sure that your teacher just immediately changed the rules after you turned your thing in it and just said, okay, apparently I need to specify it can't be a constructed language. Yeah, rule breaker, rule changer. What do you do there? My brand. But I don't really want to go into too much of the plot details of A Clockwork Orange because if you've never seen the movie, I find the joy of it is just discovering how depraved our main character is. And it's a nearly X-rated film from 1971. Trust me, folks, he gets pretty goddamn depraved. This movie was banned in England for many years because people felt that it was inspiring copycat crimes. And normally when I hear that, I think, oh, that's you're overreacting. But you read about some of the crimes that are being committed and you think, oh, they might have a point here. God damn. So who knows? But A Clockwork Orange is a fascinating film. It shows off a lot of the amazing camera work that Stanley Kubrick and his collaborators were just known for and celebrated for and is easily one of my favorite films. So I, that's why I had to put it on the list. Though, uh, yeah, number four, I guess, because it's it's not an actual color. It's a fruit that we're referring to here. But I always thought it was a, a color way back when I was a younger man watching this film. And oh, oh, to be a young man watching this film was just a, a good old time, I have to say. Yes, but the disenchanted youth of a dystopic future. Side note, the title apparently comes from an old Cockney expression, as queer as a clockwork orange, which Anthony Burgess had heard in his service times during World War II, oh. and he liked the phrase. And... In the introduction of the copy I have, I think he has a foreword, which is called A Clockwork Orange Resucked, I believe, if I'm remembering that correctly. Not reduct? No, nope, re- resucked. Resucked. He's sucking that orange, I guess. Okay. I don't know. And the quote that he has from it is that it refers to a person who has the appearance of an organism lovely with color and juice, but is in fact only a clockwork toy to be wound up by God or the devil. Or, since this is increasingly replacing both, the almighty state. End quote. So, apparently, color or juice were part of the imagery he wanted to evoke there, something that was pulpy and juicy and organic that had then been replaced by a clockwork, wind-up, mechanical entity in a total totalitarian state. Did you just have the book there? Do you just always have a copy of Clockwork Orange at your desk at all? T- London, what? I mean... Yeah, it's called my mind. I don't you know? know what to think. It's in there. Whatever. The mind is a mysterious thing. It is a strange and mysterious and really when I dig into years, largely disappointing, but here we are all the same. I was very obsessed with the Clockwork Orange for a very long time. Yes, as as all fantastically minded people should be. So, having said all that, you're number four in this grand list of color. My number four, we're going to take a little turn into 2005 with a Wes Craven film called Red Eye. I have never heard of this film. So much fun. You haven't heard of Red Eye? Oh man, it's fun. I don't think I have. 
It is definitely one of Wes Craven's probably lesser watched, lesser talked about films. It came out very quickly and the pacing is very, very quick. It wasn't very consequential. So I think people just maybe saw it and then forgot it, except for I never did forget it. That is it stayed with me all of this time. (laughs) I'm not saying that this is a masterpiece of Wes Craven horror and thrills. But I am saying that it is a really fun watch. And what it is, is Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams is always, she's always fun. Yeah, she is. And she can pull off any hair color. And I respect that about her. Nice. I can't remember which hair color she has in this because every time I try to think of her face, there's just this constant shifting of her hair from red to blonde to brown because I've just seen her with so many hair colors. (laughs) She, however, works as a manager of a hotel. Okay. And it's a very elite hotel in Miami, and she's very good at her job. But she's not in Miami right now. She has been somewhere else for a conference or a vacation. doesn't matter because it starts in the airport, and she's trying to get back home to Miami. But the flight is delayed, and she has to take the red eye, you see to get back to Miami. Meanwhile, she meets Killian Murphy. Oh, this movie. Now I remember this thing. I never saw this, but I just remember the, yeah, okay. I didn't, I had no idea this was a Wes Craven thing. Yeah, right? Okay. I just remember the clips of her sitting next to Killian Murphy and Killian Murphy being all Killian Murphy-ish, you know, like as only Killian Murphy can do. Yeah, I'm thinking it's Killian and not Cillian. I don't really know. I feel like I've heard Killian before. So, whatever. Mr. Murphy, get at us. We know you're a listener. Let us know. Uh huh. So, yeah, he's great in this movie. He shows up at the airport. He's all charming. They meet at one of the airport bars. She orders a sea breeze or a bay breeze. There's a little flirty discussion as to whether or not sea breezes or bay breezes are her drink. Because it becomes important later where he Mm. tries to do this little con man thing where he's like, I bet I can guess your drink. He suggests that she's probably going to order a sea breeze. And so I think to just be different, she'll order a bay breeze instead to prove him wrong. She gets on her flight. And then it turns out as she's looking for her seat, Killian Murphy is sitting in the seat right next to her. And oh, wow, what a random coincidence because (laughs) they were vibing in that bar. Turns out not a coincidence. He is totally there on purpose because he has been stalking her for reasons of the high political conspiracy assassination variety. And he needs her and her hotel managerial skills to do some stuff for him, ideally before the flight lands, because they're running behind on their plans since the flight was delayed into this red-eye territory. And I really like thrillers that take place in confined spaces, or actually just films that take place in confined spaces. Kind of like the bottle episodes, but on a plane. And so that's fun (laughs) because you have this idea of uber containment where you're in the air. And so all you can use is this flying, hurtling container, all those thousands of feet up in the sky. And how can we maintain the suspense within that small space? Mm -hmm. It's a very short film because they don't do it for long, but they do manage to keep it up. Mm -hmm. And Killian Murphy is just such a wonderful little psychopath. Yeah. That's fun. And Rachel McAdams is actually a very competent victim in this (laughs) where she gets shit done. Uh And that's also really fun. Like she's doing what she can. She's making her move. She's not just going to sit in that seat and kind of cry for an hour and a half. 
she focuses and I respect that. So it's just, it's really fun. It's not going to change your life to watch it, but it won't be a waste of your time either if you like just a, a fun, quick little thriller. Right on. Okay. So what's your number three? My number three, I, I've realized I'm having a little trouble getting out of the early 70s because like I said, <laughs> my first film, Behind the Green Door, 1972. My second film, Clockwork Orange, 1971. My third film is a little number from 1972 by a delightful mustachioed man from Baltimore, John Waters, and his film, Pink Flamingos. Represent. Fuck yeah, Pink Flamingos. Now, if you've never heard of Pink Flamingos, I am actually not going to give away much of the plot of of Pink Flamingos because I think it is better enjoyed when you go in completely cold to it. I did, I actually, I just, I want to give people the opportunity I did not have because I found out about this movie because a friend of mine had seen it late night on cable and said, oh my God, man, I just saw this film and at the very end of it, blank. And reveals an ending to me that I really wish I had not known about going into it. So <laughs> I'll say that if you've never seen Pink Flamingos, check it out. So if you're going to give just a lightning summary of Pink Flamingos, what would that be? Lightning summary is Divine is a woman who lives in Baltimore and wishes to always maintain her title as filthiest woman of the world. But there are people who wish to compete for the crown or compete for that title, if you will. And the movie is kind of about their war and their competition to make sure they're the filthiest people and shenanigans along the way ensue. Another film about shenanigans, you know? I will, this will give nothing away, but I will say that when I found out about this film, I think it was the mid-aughts somewhere in there, I was looking at IMDb, and this is back when there were message boards for each film in IMDb, and one of them... I swear to God, the title of this post was, please tell me they didn't actually fuck that chicken. <laughs> did they? Well, okay, spoiler on that, no, they did not. They do not actually fuck a chicken. But that's the kind of movie that this is. This is the movie that makes someone have to go onto the internet and double check. Did they actually fuck that chicken? Something happens in this movie that made someone wonder, did they fuck a chicken? John Waters bringing a whole new sub-definition to spatchcocking. Oh. (laughs) That's what's happening. Now, the general premise of Pink Flamingos is that John Waters set out to make the filthiest movie of all time. And a lot of people will say not only did he succeed... In 1972 with this film, he has not been outdone yet. And really, when you watch this film, you will say to yourself, it can't possibly get worse than this. Oh, no. Keep watching the film. It can get worse than this. But it's actually a great film if you dive into it and you are just blown away by the the type of transgressive cinema that John Waters is going for. It's really a great introduction to a lot of his work. And since then I've, I've come to just just love John Waters because he's such a delightful human being to watch and listen to. He has another, an earlier film of his multiple maniacs, which is on the criterion collection. And his commentary to that is, it's just so fun to listen to. 
It is a showcase of all the Dreamland players, which were his friends that he made movies with as a young man in Baltimore. And I guess I really appreciate it because I love movies where you really do get a sense of this is a a group of friends who came together to make a movie. And despite the fact that making a movie is actually really hard and very boring, the friends stay together and made some art by God. Yes, I said art. Pink Flamingos is art. You heard it first here. Probably didn't hear it first here. Most people were saying this way back in the day, too. Nothing Ben says is original. Okay. At least I called you Ben that time. That's, yeah. Small wins. That's weird. I heard Benji. I don't know. That's just what my mind is programmed to do now. Oddly, I came across one of those films on Disney Plus the other night. I'm like, whoa, it's a Benji film on Disney Plus. How about that? I thought you meant a John Waters film. Oh, if only. God damn, I wish. Man, oh, man, that would have been great. Right next to the Hocus Pocus is the Pink Flamingos. Disney, you know, they bought up all of John Waters' films that the, the media conglomerate continues to consume, uh, if only. So my number three is a 1997 film, an animated film, in fact, called Perfect Blue. Oh. By, and I'm going to butcher this name, Satoshi Kon? Kon? Yeah, it's an anime, right? It is an anime. Okay, yes. yes. It's a very beautiful film noirish anime, especially coming at a time in the 90s where a lot of the anime style was to make everything very big and very round and very bright. Kon here is going to zig when everybody else is zagging and make these really beautiful illustrations or animations. I'm not a big anime person, so I don't really know the right term to use Mm -hmm. there. We have a friend who is very well educated in anime who, when and if we do some anime, we'll bring them so that we have the vocabulary. But Mm -hmm. this is one of the few anime that I do love and has stuck with me because we have some really creepy, amazing dark themes, as anime can do, but with these really cool, more realistic animation styles. Not fully realism, but everybody is just a little bit ugly and a little bit something, right? like a little bit repulsive, except for the few that are a little bit more kind of classically beautiful. And the people in this that are classically beautiful are our main character, who starts out as a J-pop singer. She's in a little girl band, Hmm. and she has this pristine J-pop image, and she wants to retire from that and start a different career path as an actress. And we see a lot of cool juxtaposition way at the beginning of her doing her J-pop stuff, which is... Japanese pop music for people who aren't it's K-pop but Japan is really what J-pop is but I mean she's a pop star K-pop itself is a modifier on just pop music so you know yeah but if like people aren't familiar with like what K-pop or J-pop I don't know how you might not be but just in case it is she's basically a pop star and she wants to be something else, something older, something grittier. Kind of reminds me a little bit of what we talked about with Sabrina Gomez in Spring Breakers, where she was like this Disney actress, and then she wanted to move on and do grittier roles. Mm. That's what this character wants to do, is she wants to grow up. And we get a lot of cool little juxtaposing scenes of her performing in her pop group, and then her just at home in her very 
real dirty, crowded apartment. So and dirty. so it humanizes her a lot. But as she gets into this acting world, things are going to get a little weird. She starts seeing ghostly visions of her pop alter ego self. And then there seems to be this website that has her name on it and claims to be her diary. And she actually resonates a lot with what is being written in the diary of her day-to-day stuff. Because this is 1997. This is before Twitter and Facebook allowed people to know where people were at all times. So it was weird for her that there was this blog that seemed to claim to be her and seemed to know exactly what she was doing at any given time. She also seems to have this stalker who kind of maybe wants to kill her. Mm. There's somebody else who's kind of maybe taking her identity from her, or maybe it's a ghost. <laughs> maybe she's crazy. Like We ask all of those questions in the middle. These things will be resolved. I won't tell you how, but it is a cool, weird story that just bleeds reality and dreamscapes and psychosis and the questioning of doppelgangers and identity theft. Are we seeing a trend here with the movies I have brought (laughs) to the table that, yeah, just dissolves into some really kind of beautiful, weird, creepy, haunting themes? You just respect yourself an identity thief. I do respect me an identity thief. It's like if you pull it off nowadays, that's impressive because, you know, back in the day, it was stealing the the license of someone who looked kind of like you. But nowadays, god damn, that's some hacking you have to do. You got to swipe out some social security numbers. It's a little intense these days. Yeah, it takes so much effort. And I just envy that motivation (laughs) because I just don't have it. But I would love to be that motivated. It's so true, folks. She has none. I don't. Okay, that's the second thing we can agree on. I'm not a highly motivated con individual, but I want to be. London, let's lay out a very uncomfortable truth right now. You and I actually agree on a lot of things, and that's why this world is a cruel place. No. (laughs) I can't give you that. Yeah, you know what? I know that you know I'm right, but you're not going to say yes to that one. I can't agree with you three times in one episode. <laughs> What's your number two? All right, my number two. I was gonna, I decided to be a little cute with this one. There is a color in the title of this thing. Oh, but it's, it's in a foreign language. I finally got out of the 70s here, and we went with the year <laughs> 2000. The title is French, the movie itself is not, because I'm talking about that lovely Baz Luhrmann romp Moulin Rouge. Ah, yes. No, it counts. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. totally counts. Yeah, I, I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Moulin is like French for red or something, right? Well, Rouge is. <laughs> That's the one. That, I knew it was part of it. Okay, I figured it was, yeah, one of those. But Moulin Rouge. For yes, the... it is the red mill. Yes, there's... An elephant there, too, I imagine. There's not, but that's fine. Well, this movie's full of shit, then. (laughs) I know. God damn it all. Lies to you. Lies. I know lies. I bet there wasn't even a sateen at all or something. I don't know. Moulin Rouge is Lightning Summerman Moulin Rouge, a young writer played by a man we've discussed many times on on the podcast, Ewan McGregor. 
a man, Ewan McGregor and his penis, they go to Paris in the early 1900s, actually the turn of the century, to become a bohemian writer and write about love, which he actually knows nothing about. He falls in love with someone, and there's some tragedy involved with that. And along the way, there are songs. The really the big thing about this movie that I think still works bizarrely well is the jukebox musical thing that it has going on, where they're combining... Elton John songs with Nirvana songs in there. I mean, there's a moment here where you hear a Nirvana song, and the first time I saw this movie, I my mind literally blew up because what the hell? It's actually one of the first times I think that uh, some of like Nirvana's music was being used in a movie because Courtney Love had finally said, yeah, yeah, fine, let him do it, whatever. Like, fine, fuck it. And like, ah, oh, the fuck ever. I don't care anymore. I'm Courtney Love. I don't know much about Courtney Love. So. True grunge never cared, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. I think, like, a big thing that happens to a lot of very stylized films from the early 2000s is that sometimes they just don't age very well. We've rewatched this film in the past few years, you and I, and the style still works for us. Have we? <laughs> I have no memory. Of no, we have. You're going you. to remember watching it with me when I bring up this ne- my next point. Okay. What we did discover was that we were rooting for the bad guy in the film the last time we rewatched this Fuck thing. Yeah, well, I always have. Yeah. Yes. The, the... <laughs> That's why this movie is special to me, because in the years, I've just come to really just sympathize with the Duke in this movie. The little, the, the, the slight, <laughs> the Duke. I can't even do it. I can't get my voice that high. But a plot of this movie is that This guy who is going to finance the Moulin Rouge to renovate and become a nicer place is the Duke, and he wants to have Satine, the star courtesan of the Moulin Rouge, all to himself. And But that's a, there's a problem because now she's in love with the young writer, and they have to go behind the guy's back all the time and all that. And really on the rewatch, I just thought to myself, you know, the Duke is kind of a creep, and you know, he's the rich asshole, but he's the honest one here. He says, I want to buy Satine and have her to myself. Which, as a sex worker, that is a thing that you can do because that's what that is. So he's honest there. And Satine just does not explain to him at any given point, like, uh, well, I kind of like this other guy too. And you really seem like you might be into cacoldry. So we might want to give that a shot. I don't know if you want to try that or not, but the whole movie is like just them going around the Duke's back and lying to him all the time. So in a weird way, I, I love the style of the movie. I love, you know, this representation of uh, this wild representation of turn of the century, Bohemian Paris, but at the same time, like, man, feel bad for that rich asshole Duke. Poor I know, the guy. Duke really does get fucked over because, yeah, Boslerman, gorgeous, gorgeous visual eye. And I love just the crazy, overstimulating energy he brings to everything he yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. Big fan. But, yeah, this poor Duke. <laughs> Ziggler, like, sends Satine to the duke's room and is like seduce and destroy right that is your mission make this dude think that you want to do him and only him so that he will finance the play you want to be in so it's already a little bit of a ruse yeah and he knows he's at a brothel there to contract sex work so that's all legit and chill and all he wants is a exclusive contract yeah that's all he asked for and then she's trying to convince him that she loves him and 
I don't even think that that was a necessary part of the equation, probably, for him. If you had just maintained the exclusivity of your contract through the production, like, fine. Or if you decide that you don't want to be contracted to him in some sort of sexual obligatory manner, totally your prerogative, but then break the contract. Like, you can't, <laughs> can't do both here. Like, stop <laughs> fucking with his mind for his money and playing the victim on that. Yeah, so... I'm saying she's a gold digger. Uh, a little bit there. I am saying she's a gold digger, actually. My number two is also keeping it red. Re- okay, so, all right, all right. We got yeah, some crossover on the colors. Just a whole slew of red. All right. It is a 1999 film called *The Red Violin*. Aha! Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. it's got some stain power. Yeah. This. <laughs> you have that? you seen this movie? I. If I have, it was like when it was on cable back in the day. I have not seen this movie in recent memory, so I, I couldn't tell you anything about it. Other than the fact that that red violin, man, like, fucking it, it, it holds in there, you know? So, caveat to red violin is you have to be in the right mood for it. Otherwise, this movie will feel very, very long. Oh. I forgot to look up what the actual runtime is, but it's one of those stories that has multiple stories within it that takes place over a long span of time. And so if you are not locked and loaded for that ride... It can be very, very slow. But the premise of it is a very cool one. And so what we have with this movie is Samuel L. Jackson. And he is an appraiser of sorts or an auctioneer collector. And he has a couple of hats. But he's in town in the modern times of 1999 Mm -hmm. to go to this auction and check out this violin to see if it is, in fact, the red violin. Because there is this folk piece of violinist history (laughs) called (laughs) the red violin. It is based off of an actual violin, but the story is not exactly a true story. But in the story of the film, it is created in the 1600s by this master violin maker. And... He has a wife, and the wife, while he's making this violin, sits down with a tarot reader, and she asks the tarot reader to read her her fortune and her future. And the tarot reader will, and we will get that reading unfolding in several parts as this violin travels throughout time. And so the protagonist and focus of our film is this violin as it goes through just the hands of different people and different musicians or players throughout the centuries to arrive with Samuel L. Jackson in 1999. And then he kind of becomes yet another person in the Red Violin story. I just really love that as a premise for a film in terms of focusing on the object, this idea that objects have a personhood and a history that, especially with antiques, is longer than any human story and that it has seen so much and so much time and that we in and that it repositions us as holders of that object as just a blip in time as preservers and upholders sidekicks if you will in this epic quest of this object and that's really cool and i love what it does there so it's very rare when a film chooses to take on an ensemble cast and really not make them the focus of it, but rather, yeah, this object. Yeah, the object. And it's not like a MacGuffin object either. It is 
a legit just character in its yeah, own it's, right. It's and, not the thing that would drive the plot. It is the plot. Yeah. And I suppose this isn't really too much of a shocking spoiler because it's not like a huge twist. Because I think one thing that's also really cool about the Red Violin, because it, initially it's a little confusing as to why this is linked to the wife and her tarot reading. Because at first, the first tarot card that the woman pulls is the moon. And mm. the reader is telling her that she's going to have a long life. Only she's going to die five minutes later. So you're like, uh, is this woman wrong? Oh, uh, she should have read the reversal on that card. Yeah, God damn the it. rest of the reading does seem to match with this violin. And uh. we do learn that why it is the red violin is that the stain and varnish on the violin is actually the blood of the wife that the violinist was in deep sorrow and grief and he put her blood into this violin and so huh. in a way her reading that the tarot reader was seeing as this very very long life that was going to see war and famine and disease and <laughs> rebirth is actually the piece of her that is soaked into the wood pores of this violin. You're going to have a very long life. Oh, that's awesome. I'm sorry, I should specify. Not you. Some of your red blood cells are going to be around yeah. for a very long time. You, the however, <laughs> would, uh, I don't, don't do that savings bond you're thinking about. I wouldn't yeah. Yeah, try. Well, it also gets into this existential question <laughs> of longevity and the role that legend and folk history plays in remembrance and thus you as a person still living on mm. so when we think of great authors that are remembered and known in some ways things like tolkien or mm. we, we've talked about hp lovecraft right like lovecraft long dead oh yeah in a way like he lives on because of the legends that mm -hmm. sort of still survive around him as well as like the stories that he left behind some sort of material piece and so she becomes part of that rich folk history of just having her name tied to this object. It's very cool. Mm. So, yeah. All cool right. premise, but it can it can feel long. <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up. It's two hours, 20 minutes. Okay. So, yeah. It can, yeah, feel very long. Well, I think it just doesn't have any traditional, you know, like three-act structure, so you just have no idea. It's kind of like when we were watching Boogie Nights, and I said, I love this movie, but it does feel like an eight-hour film yeah. for some reason. <laughs> Because it just keeps going, and mm -hmm. you just don't expect. You don't know where it's going next. Well, you know, things that are long are a big part of Boogie Nights. Yeah. We'll yeah. Talk about his dick. Yeah, I followed you. Okay. What are your honorable mentions before you get to your number one? All right. I, I just have a few fun ones here. One that I always laugh about when I look back on it is The Boy with Green Hair. And this was a movie from, I believe, the 1950s. I really don't know too much about it, but it is about a, a boy who, through some accident, just suddenly his hair is green. And it's kind of a story about being outcast because there's something different about you. And I think was maybe an allegory that young children in the, the 50s and 60s needed to be hearing. And this was a film that my grandfather had recorded way back in the day. Like I said in the past, my grandfather recorded just so many movies, and I would just watch whatever he had. And ironically, I watched this on one of his old televisions, which was a black and white set. So, yeah, <laughs> whole thing was kind of lost on me. Another honorable mention is Where the Red Fern Grows. Aw. You know this movie? I know the book. Okay, yeah, the book, it's... I don't remember what happens in the book other than it's sad. Uh, yeah, it, it's one of those movies where if you go onto that website, doesthedogdie.com, yeah, guess what? The dogs, uh, plural. No. 
Yeah, think Old Yeller, but with uh, raccoon hunting dogs. It was a movie I just remember being shown in elementary school. There were always a few movies, like, every now and then they would show us in class, just, like, because the teachers didn't feel like teaching that day, (laughs) or what have you. And it was one of those movies that just made the whole class just cry their eyes out, because, yeah, these two dogs, the young boy just becomes to befriend, and he grows because of his friendship through the dogs, but, oh no, thing happens to the dog. I honestly forget if it's rabies or the one of them is shot or whatever. Like one of them dies and then the other dog dies out of depression because it's dog mate. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah. And they bury the dogs and then soon they find that a red fern is growing at their gravesite. These are the books we assign to elementary school children. <laughs> because Think of the children. Fuck the children. You read about the goddamn dead dogs, kids. You gotta learn this lesson sometime or another. Yeah, I think every elementary school-based book was just so depressing. It was, yeah, <laughs> the, where the red fern grows and old yeller and like, Bridge to Terabithia. Oh my <laughs> god, Bridge to Terabithia was fucking brutal man yeah and then they show you my girl which is kind of the same thing it's like god damn you're like kids here's the thing there's this concept called death and you need to learn it right now because you're five now so (laughs) oh god uh another one that is one of the japanese films i love is red beard this is an akira kurosawa film akira kurosawa was especially when it's related to Redbeard, he was kind of the Stanley Kubrick of Japan because Redbeard was a two-year-long production about a doctor in Edo-era Japan, and it's a very long movie. It's a very almost spiritual movie. Three hours long. The main character, or the title character, is this doctor played by Toshiro Mifune, who was a longtime collaborator of Akira Kurosawa. And he's called Redbeard because he has a beard that we're told has reddish color. This is a black and white film. Again, whoopsie daisy, you know. When it happened with the boy with the green hair, it's just because I happen to be watching it on a black and white television. Here, Kurosawa has a title character called Red Beard, and that's not like it's not a different title in the Japanese. I don't I I can't say the actual name of it in Japanese because I would mispronounce it horribly, but it, it just translates as Red Beard. So red, the color, is an important part of this. And he filmed it in black and white. And it was the last time he would work with Toshiro Mifune, who was his main actor. Toshiro Mifune was a huge Japanese movie star and was fed up with Kurosawa after this because it was a two-year-long production. He had to keep the beard going the entire time. Couldn't take on roles that, you know, required him to not have a beard. So he lost a lot of work on it. That's why I say Kurosawa was kind of the Stanley Kubrick of this because... (laughs) God, when he was making Eyes Wide Shut, I'm sure Tom Cruise would have thought, you know, it would really be nice to get back to those movies I can make $20 million on instead of staying here to make this movie. But it's Stanley Kubrick, so whatever. Yeah. I don't know if we'd ever really cover a Kurosawa film. There's really nothing to annotate, maybe a little bit of Japanese history. Wait, but what have we learned here, Benji? And there's always something to annotate. That's true. There's always something to annotate. That's if our thing. If we can thing. annotate Hercules in New York and excess baggage, we can annotate <laughs> Kurosawa. <laughs> I, I, I would have a few films. Uh, the Hidden Fortress is a great one. That's the biggest inspiration on Star Wars was The Hidden Fortress. Seven Samurai, Rashomon, uh, Ikiru is a personal favorite of mine. So there's a lot of good ones to go with there. We might do that sometime. And my final honorable mention is... 
Fuchsia. I know nothing about this film. <laughs> I don't know what this film is, but there is a film called Fuchsia. All right. And what is the lightning summary of Fuchsia? I don't know. Hang on. Let me look it up really quick. Fuchsia. This is a movie from 2009. I believe it might be a, a TV movie. A story about an old woman, a cool hip Lola who likes the color fuchsia, must deal with her old siblings and matters of life. Okay. All right. Well, those are my honorable mentions. What are yours? Uh, for some reason, I thought your number, you were just given fuchsia your number one slot. I didn't no, realize that was just no. on your honorable mention. No, no. I said <laughs> okay, that. That makes my... more sense. I was yeah. like, you number one, you're just going to randomly drop fuchsia in there. <laughs> okay. My honorable mentions, we're going to go blue on this one. Oh, boy. Very blue. So, honorable mention number one. It's a little 1999 film. Again, I guess I stuck in the 90s the way you stuck to the 70s. It happens. Although, I do have to point out the irony of how much your main pet peeve about 70s filmmaking is that they seem to forget every color but browns. <laughs> and Except for their titles. all of these titles from yeah. the 70s have colors in them. So They were, just had to aside. compensate because the films themselves were just brown. So, you got to suggest colors to people in the titles. <laughs> But my 1999 blue film is uh-huh. Varsity Blues. Ah! <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, so God. Varsity Blues is very important for two reasons. Yeah, it is. One is because baby Paul Walker is in uh-huh. it, and he's beautiful and delightful and perfectly cast as, like, the dumb high school quarterback that's just Mr. Perfect until he mm-hmm. blows out his knee, and he's always given these little peppy speeches at the pep rallies that are really dumb, but he commits to them, and you're like, I can see this. Doesn't he use a southern accent in that movie or something? No, because that's the really important thing, number two, which is actually the really only important thing about Varsity Blues, is that James Vanderbeek is the main person, and he uses a Texan accent, kind of. I just remember, I never saw this movie, but I saw the TV spots and the trailers to this thing over and over again. Just the way that Vanderbeek says this bizarre line, like, I don't want your life. Or I guess he's talking to his dad or something, but mm-hmm. God, he was just pushing that Texas accent really hard. I get he pushes it so hard and not a single word of it lands and it's amazing. <laughs> So Varsity Blues lightning summaries uh, that we have Texas accented kind of James Vanderbeek who lives in a small Texas town and he plays football because he lives in a small Texas town. He is the backup quarterback. Paul Walker is the one true quarterback, except for he blows out his knee at one point early in the narrative. And James Vanderbeek, who's never really wanted to play football in the first place, suddenly gets pulled up into the world of what it means to be young. 18 and the high school quarterback in texas so that's a whole thing well well sports thing i was always aware of varsity blues as one of the mtv movie productions when mtv for a hot second in the early 2000s decided that they just didn't want to be a television a music television station at all anymore and just wanted to make teen movies And that was like a thing for about like 1999 to 2001. It was like a hot three years of just making a whole bunch of teen films. This one is marketed as a sex comedy, which is curious. I think because American Pie, they wanted to sort of cash in on the American Pie sex comedy vibes. But I'm here to tell you, it is not a sex comedy. (laughs) There's very little sex and there's very little comedy. It's actually very 
sad in a lot of ways because I can see where they're trying to satirize the pressures and fervor of high school football in Texas, but the problem is, is it's too real <laughs> for it to be a satire. So <laughs> there's that. The only thing that's not real is James Vanderbeek's accent, and it makes it so much fun that <laughs> brings the joy back in. But it actually is a much better film than I anticipated it being. I watched it for the first time very recently, and it had some things to say, which I was surprised about. Hmm. It's got a lot of things that probably didn't need to be in it, so it's not, it's not a perfect film, but it's better than I anticipated. And yeah, God, God damn that accent. It's so amazing. <laughs> I think first I saw the trailer and I was like, I did not realize James Vanderbeek was going to use that accent. I am in. <laughs> Let's do this. All right. I love James Vanderbeek. I do. He's great in uh, Bitch from Apartment oh, 23. Yeah. He's yeah. perfection. In Kesha's Blow video, he is perfection. So oh, really? By all, okay. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. She... There's some sort of unicorn war at a laser, like, gun cocktail party. And Kesha, it's like everybody has unicorn heads on except for Kesha and James Vanderbeek, and they I, have a laser gun off. I don't doubt that this is all in a Kesha video. I mean, that's... And she mounts his head on a thing, and he's playing himself in it. She addresses him as James Vanderdouche and offers hmm. him some monster cheese. It's, a whole vibe <laughs> it's a very kesha vibe but yeah james vanderbeek he's great he seems to be very self-aware and i love that about him but that texas accent so oh boy. i have to say okay so other um other honorable blue, mentions other, other movies yeah blue crush okay blue crush this is another sports related film <laughs> very formulaic mm. in of sorts we have young kate bosworth who has a lot of surfing talent and she is preparing to compete in the Pipe Masters, which are the big surfing competition in Oahu. And she's having a little bit of some difficulty because, because three years prior, she had a near drowning incident at the same pipeline. So I generally cannot stand the type of formula movie of person X would be so great at activity Y if only they could do Z. Uh And usually those things are like, oh, such and such would be such a great stage performer if they only, you know, could perform on a stage. And I'm like, well, then they wouldn't be a great stage performer because you know what? Part of being a stage musician is, you know, performing on stage. But (laughs) her, I'm willing to give, you know, a little leeway to because she was a really great circuit surf competitor since she was a child, and she just has some PTSD that she needs to move past, right? Mm-hmm. It's not so that that's a little bit more understandable. She's also doing nothing really on a constructed or constructive rehabilitation or therapy level to do this. She just keeps, you know, going out onto those waves and trying not to die. But she's a good surfer, and so we'll give that to her. But she is a townie in Oahu, so there's a kind of cool little comparison of the... I guess this is another football-related thing. I don't even like football. I don't know anything about football. <laughs> but the pro football players that are there, for like as it's been described to me by people who watch football, is that every year, until recently, I guess they have not... They relocated it since, but some VIP players get guest invited to play in a little bowl in Hawaii, and nobody takes this competition seriously. It's mostly as a reward for the season to go take your families and hang out in Hawaii and pretend to play football. Mm -hmm. But 
there's a group of football players that are in town specifically for that purpose. And one of them, who's later one of the guys from Vampire Diaries, meets Kate Bosworth and sees she's a maid in the hotel that he works at. And he's like, you know what? I'd like you to give me surf lessons. And I'd also kind of like to bang you. And she kind of gets wrapped up in that for I'm a while. I'm willing to pay for one of those. Yeah. We don't have to say which one is which. I'm just going to give you a grand in an envelope. True story. That does happen. But, so it's a, it's a little bit of a, it's got like the romantic side plot, which the movie really could have done without. It really could have just focused on the surfing. That's where mm-hmm. you know, it gets a little formulaic. And uh, there, yeah, the, the whole thing ensues. But it is a really great surfing movie. It's probably one of the best just like filmed surfing. Mm-hmm. Also, film. Michelle Rodriguez is there. And she's also there on a jet ski and that's always great. Yeah. It's one of those things where you say to yourself, okay, I could have done with less of the football player and just more Michelle Rodriguez doing things would have worked out a lot better, but neither here nor there. It's actually an excellent film for what it is. It does follow Mm -hmm. a formula and it doesn't deviate from that formula, but what it does within the formula specifically showcasing surfing is very, very cool and very watchable. They bring in a lot of professional surfers. They had a big enough production that they could go out right on the water and film them surfing the Banzai Pipeline, which is in Oahu. And it is one of the most beautiful, dangerous, high surf wave area in the world. If you don't want to watch Blue Crush, you should at least look up the Banzai Pipeline uh, the pipe masters that take place there as an actual surfing competition. And it's crazy. These waves are just so, so big. These professional surfers are just getting tossed around and or owning these giant waves. I can't even ex- properly express how big and terrifying these waves are that they will surf. Yeah. Yeah. Though it's incredible. we have to address the, the blue elephant in the room, and that is Blue Crush 2. Yeah, that one's not good. That's not. (laughs) That's not good at all. I have recently found out that Benji had not seen Blue Crush, and so I made him watch Blue Crush. And then I, so there's a used bookstore and DVD place that's directly across the street from my house. And I happened to come across the Blu-ray for Blue Crush 2, which is when I found out that Benji had not seen Blue Crush 1, because I was like, well, obviously, this is what we're doing (laughs) tonight, we're watching both of these back to back. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I do not regret anything about making him watch Blue Crush 1. Blue Crush 2 probably could have uh, lived my entire life without... It's like we're, we're in South Africa for some reason. The the main character isn't even the one who's doing the surfing that we're supposed to be worried about. There's a thing about poaching and I think some squatter's rights commentary. It's, it's an odd film. Blue Crush, it had a formula that it stuck to. Blue Crush 2... Not so much. So what is your number one? Oh, that's, you, you've gone through them all. Okay. Well, there's two that are kind of not even honorable mentions, but two that are actually my number one, but we've talked about them before. So I'm going to give them before. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> this is the one I figured that we might have crossover on because you haven't mentioned it already. But my number one is a movie that we have talked about before, and that is Blue Velvet. David Lynch's 1986 masterpiece. I mean, there's 
we've said, I think, everything that we can say about that in our episode. But when it comes to movies that have a color in the title, I really can't think of a better film. Unlike many of the other films on my list, actually all of them, because I guess there is a green door at some point in Behind the Green Door. There are pink flamingos in Pink Flamingos, though the movie is not about pink flamingos. There's Isn't that one also in black and white? What's that? Pink Flamingos. No, no, that's in color. Okay. Yeah. Filmed in glorious Technicolor or 16 millimeter. For some reason in my mind, film. it's in black and white. No, uh, mul- Multiple Maniacs is in black and white. Uh, okay. I think yeah. you're confusing those two. Yeah. Yeah. It's understandable. But um, Moulin Rouge, there is a, a, a red mill in <laughs> scene in Moulin Rouge. It doesn't really figure into the plot at all. But Blue Velvet, it, it tells you like it is. It is there is blue, there is velvet. The plot of this movie involves blue velvet, both the song and the fabric. It's all in there. And the whole goddamn movie is blue. This is the Picasso blue period of David Lynch films. The movie is so fucking blue. It's just everywhere. It's amazing. And like I said, we've said so much about it already. I can't think of anything really fresh to say on it. But at the same time, I couldn't not make this my number one. Because when I think of movies that have a color in the title, this is the first thing that will always come to mind for me. Yeah. Well, so lightning summary for people who so, did not listen to the Blue Velvet so, episode. So for those of you who did not listen to our episode on Blue Velvet, lightning summary. A young college boy, played by Kyle McLaughlin, comes back home after his dad is hurt and has to stay in the ho- his hometown while his dad recovers. However, in doing so, he stumbles upon a underworld kind of crime scene in his otherwise idyllic small-town Americana slice of life, and he decides to uncover things that he perhaps should not be uncovering and meets many unsavory figures. And the question is, is this so far from his own soul? Is he really wanting to be a part of this world he so much despises? Well, find out on that episode that we did about Blue Velvet. Just go listen to it, folks. Why? Come on. What's wrong with you? It's only like three hours long. What's the big deal? All right. So. What is, London, we've gotten here. Tell us your number one movie with a color in the title. So, I have two. <laughs> London, I think you misunderstand the concept Breaking of a rules. number one. Bending the rules. You already established. That's what it's I'm a, doing. A singular point that we come to with one movie that is the top pick. But, okay, what are your two number one <laughs> movies? Both happen to be the color black. But okay. the first one that is really my true number one is Beyond the Black Rainbow. But okay. I have spoken extensively about why mm-hmm. I just absolutely love that film. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Not only films that have ti- or colors mm-hmm. in the title, little experimental, wonderful cinematography, meditative, psychedelic clusterfuck of MK Ultra exploitation. It's just beautiful. That's as much of a lightning summary as I can give because there is no plot. This is the most, that is by far, I think outside of some very avant-garde Andy Warhol-ish films I've seen, that is one of the most plot-free movies of all time. Yeah, this is pure cinema in its purest form. Mm -hmm. We have a full-length episode on that, though, so I am going to move on to the backup number number one, one, which is... 
a little 2010 film okay. by Darren Aronofsky called Black Swan. Ah, okay. Yeah, beautiful film. In many ways, many fans of Perfect Blue might say that it is very similar because <laughs> oh. it is. Although, fun side trivia note, Darren Aronofsky, a huge fan of Perfect Blue and has acknowledged that a lot of the themes from Perfect Blue do get sort of trickle into Black Swan, also in Requiem for a Dream. So that's fun. So he has been incorporating Perfect Blue into his films for a very long time. It's the, in Requiem for a Dream, the scene where Jennifer Connelly's in the bathtub and she's hunched over in the bath and then she screams into the water. That's actually a... Very curious shot-for-shot recreation from the animation in Perfect Blue. Oh, okay. But I digress, because Mm -hmm. Black Swan is not about, I guess in some ways, drug use is in it, but it is Natalie Portman as a ballerina, and she wants to be perfect at it. And Mm -hmm. she lives with her single mother that has a very Carrie vibes situation, a very (laughs) controlling mother who herself was once a ballerina and gave up her body and life for her daughter or her life as a ballet dancer because once you have kids very hard to go back into professional ballet and Natalie Portman internalizes all of this perfectionist pressure another sub trope I guess that I really love in films are people who do really extreme sadomasochistic things with their bodies in striving or out of striving for some sort of perfection or dedication in an area that nobody else cares about. (laughs) Super fun. (laughs) Love it so much because I think it goes back to like the why I love con men as well. Uh It's just like I love that motivation. I love that drive because I just don't have it. And so (laughs) to dedicate yourself that completely to something to the detriment of your health and your own psyche is just super fascinating to me. I mean, it's a very real thing that ballerinas are made of pain. Yes, I also just love ballet. I love it as an art form. I attend as many ballet company productions as I can. Never been a ballerina. Never have wanted to be a ballerina. (laughs) Actually, there is the most embarrassing thing that exists out there of me somewhere. Not, I don't think, on like the internet or anything. It's I'm probably on a VHS in my parents' basement somewhere. Oh, God. But when I was in high school, I was on the crew team um, rowing. So oh, okay. <laughs> haven't said this in a while, but trademark New England. Uh. Yeah, we were into <laughs> water sports, <laughs> sailing and rowing and such things. And, so, and you did in a ballet outfit. That's fascinating. No, well, I mean, like... Kind of in a what? way, I guess. I, like the, I was joking, London. Jesus. I mean, like the the uh, whatever. There's a lot of like spandex involved in a lot of different sports. Um, what the but fuck have we gotten into? Yeah, no. There was this whole thing where at my high school you could get out of gym class if you were enrolled in some kind of sport. And even though the crew team trained throughout the winter, our seasons were technically fall and spring. And so if we wanted to get out of gym, we had to enroll in something else during the winter. And so there was a group of us that decided like, let's try dance. Oh. <laughs> so we signed up for this dance studio, like beginner classes for, you know, like adults or whatever. And the thing that we did not realize, and now looking back, we probably could have just stood our ground and been like, no, we're not going to participate in your goddamn recital. But the studio is like all classes 
must mandatorily participate in the end of the year recital. <laughs> and so our beginner little tap and ballet class had to perform in this like recite which luckily wasn't part of the school it was like its own dance studio but the thing is is with dance most of the time you start when you're a kid and then you sort of grow up in it we did not so these studio or this recital production had like all these little kids that came out and they were like maybe two and they did like little duck dance and so they you know were dressed like little ducks and they do a little duck dance it was adorable and everybody clapped because they're two and then you know they would get off the stage and then the 16 17 year olds you know senior class would come out and they'd been dancing since their little duck years so that was all fine and good and like they were great and then our class came out that we're also like 16 or 17 year olds and people are expecting us to be these senior level dancers. And instead we do like the equivalent of the little duck dance. (laughs) (laughs) It was terrible. And none of us were in sequence with each other and we had no rhythm. It was hilarious. Looking back, it's super funny. At the time it was just like mortifying and tedious and like, what fresh hell is this? Like, why do I have to be here? But yeah, I think somewhere there it's on VHS. So that's London's number one, is that so, VHS tape of her dancing in high school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, all the horrors. That's truly beyond the black rainbow. But no, Black Swan is this like gorgeous psychological thriller, a lot of doppelganger themes. So once again, identity theft was the ah. theme of the episode. And yeah, Natalie Portman, she's going to start going a little crazy. Her strive for perfection, because she's Mm. evolved beyond the little duck dance years, has uh, taken its toll. And she's just going to start to break and fracture. And Mila Kunis, who might be one of the most gorgeous women I've ever seen in my life, is in this. And she has this really amazing energy that Mm -hmm. (laughs) she brings that she's just like the effortless one and a lot of it is going to overlay with themes of the actual ballet of swan lake Mm -hmm. with the themes of the white swan and the dark swan and the psyche of the dark swan taking over the white swan probably do black swan at some point because i have a lot to say about tchaikovsky Mm -hmm. because who doesn't right (laughs) Yeah, boy, I just we all. wake up every day like, oh, man, I hope someone at work asks me about Tchaikovsky because I will have a... There we go. Third thing we can actually agree on. I will agree with you three times in an episode. Oh. <laughs> just wake up starting our day thinking about Tchaikovsky. Oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, cinematography. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous work on Great. that. Beautiful too, so. 16 millimeter cinematography, as I recall from uh, Aronofsky. So. Yeah. Yeah, is she crazy? Is she not? Does the black swan win and take over? I don't know. <laughs> have to watch to find out. Questions. Suspense. <laughs> Questions that will be raised and answered in the following Aronofsky movie, Mother. Oh, God, no. <laughs> that is a movie of which we will not speak. Although I think we keep bringing it up as the movie of which we will not say its name, and then we do. Uh, so, so funny. <laughs> Out of curiosity, or not even curiosity, I just did this. I okay. wrote down the colors that we incorporated into ours. Okay. So you had three reds. All right. Two greens. All right. An orange. All right. A pink and a blue. And a fuchsia. It's true, and a fuchsia. I did miss the fuchsia. So yeah. I guess two pinks of sorts. Yeah, okay, yeah, fuchsia is a kind of pink. Yeah, whatever, sure. All two right. Pinks. 
I had four blues. Uh huh. Very blue. Two reds. All right. Two blacks mm-hmm. and one purple. Hmm. All right. Surprised I didn't get a purple in there somewhere. I don't know. Maybe I could have. Honorable, honorable, extra honorable mention is Purple Rain. So there. Yeah, there we go. And, so uh, we got the blue and the red were really the winners here. Okay. Well, there you yeah. go. I, that this that's what this was about was to see what color would win. I was curious because. Okay. Wait, 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 wait! I just I am curious blue. I am curious yellow. Ah, <laughs> we got a yellow look in there. Look at that! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> those are movies. Is our point? Is th- that those are Swedish films? Yeah, those are Swedish films. So, <laughs> the thing that I find kind of interesting is that I was wondering if there were going to be any themes that were universal to movies that chose to have a color in the title. Oh, and okay. There really aren't. No, not really. Um, they're across the board. They don't necessarily pay any more attention to cinematography or color or temperature than any other films. No, no, not really. Um, fuck, I mean, Andy Warhol made a film called Blue Movie. Does it have anything to do with the color blue? Fuck no, doesn't. Is there anything blue about it? No, it's black and white. Is there anything to say about it? No, it's just a goddamn boring-ass movie of two couples who do nothing, and then at one point they have sex, and bleh. Yeah, there's Blue Ruin and The Green Room. Um, Blue Lagoon. No. Return to Blue Lagoon. We I had think. options. That's what we're saying. We had yeah. options, and we picked from those options. You know, uh, Red uh, Red Dawn, both the original and the remake. Uh, the trilogy, the Red, White, Red, Blue, White, Red, French movie trilogy. Oh, yeah, Red, White, and Blue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got that. Um, Jackie Brown. Uh, oh, Jack, yeah, okay, yeah, Jackie Brown. You know, it's Blue a, is the warmest color. Oh, that is, yeah, that. I don't know how, I've never actually seen that, so I don't know how much the color blue actually figures into the movie. Uh, one of the main characters has blue hair. Okay, well. And it's a whole thing. I actually you. have not seen the movie yet either, mm-hmm. which I don't really? know. Huh. Uh, you, you think I would? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's based on a comic, but oh. I like a graphic novel. Oh, well, okay. Um, yeah. What are random other random ass movies? The Black Hole, I guess. The Black Cauldron. Oh, the Black Cauldron. Yeah, there's like that Red Sparrow movie, which was unfortunately oh, yeah. not great. I. I fell asleep during that film, and it has been a long time since I've just completely checked out of a film enough to fall asleep during it. <laughs> Especially one that should have been great, because it was about, like, Russian assassins or whatever. Oh, nope. man. Uh, the Black Widow. There we go. Oh, Black Widow. That's your recent one. Uh, old school Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you know. We're kind of pushing it with, like, including white and black in these, since white and black are kind of considered non-colors, but... Uh, Whatever. Basically, I consider yeah. them colors. They're the best colors. Okay, Black then. is the best color. There there you go. I'm trying to think Yellow of... Submarine. Yellow, yellow Submarine. There's a video game called Indigo Prophecy. That's a great title. Yeah, yeah. I never played it, but it's one of those kind of point-and-click uh, game adventure games. More late, like more recent. I think like 2000s or something like that. But uh, yeah. It, there is really, as we've learned today, there really is no pattern to what you're going to get from a film that just happens to have a color in the title. But I like 
a good color in the title. There's something that does evoke an image. It's like David Lynch says. <laughs> if you can create a phrase that paints a word picture, then mm -hmm. that's the best kind of word combination. And colors tend to evoke images for people, right? Because it's a very visual-based thing. Even if they don't make a lot of sense. Like, what is a purple noon? I don't know, but it sounds fantastic. But yes, as we close out today, always, as we like to remind you, we are on the Twitter. We are on the Instagram, at Cinema of Cruelty. We're on Reddit, and we've had some great interactions with people on Reddit. And you know what? Give us your 5 by 5s Give us your top five movies with a color in the title. We're always happy to hear about movies that we missed or that we may have just never heard of. That's why I really like Reddit, that we're getting some of that going. Yes, Please do. So you'll hear us again very soon, I'm sure. But for right now, I think that we need to get out of here. When do we need to get out of here? In just about five, On the way down Cruelty Street, we started feeling beat. We needed to rest our feet. We wanted to take a seat. We looked for a chair or two. How many? No one knew. Didn't know just what to do at all. But then the count spoke. I know what to do. No joke. No need to cause a fuss. We will count each one of us. We were counting, finding the It's one great number. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> hey, as long as you don't go scratching at me or humping my leg, we're five by five, you know? Yeah.